This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. I want to begin by thanking Third Millennium Faith and the Department of Religious Studies for inviting me to participate in tonight's debate. And I also want to say what a privilege it is to be sharing the podium with Dr. Hoover. I've had the privilege of previously collaborating with him on a book about Jesus' resurrection. Now the question before us tonight is, should we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality? In my opening speech, I'm going to lay out some reasons why I think that the answer to that question is yes. And I presume that Dr. Hoover will then lay out his reasons for saying no. There are at least two ways to a knowledge of Jesus' resurrection, the existential and the historical. Tonight, I want to focus on the historical case for Jesus' resurrection. Now, I realize that the vast majority of Christians have not based their belief in Jesus' resurrection on historical considerations, but rather on a personal encounter with the living Lord himself. And I think that this existential approach is entirely legitimate. But I also think that a good case for Jesus' resurrection can be made historically as well. So in tonight's debate, I propose to defend two major contentions. First, there are four historical facts which any adequate historical hypothesis must account for, namely Jesus' burial, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the very origin of his disciples' belief in his resurrection. And number two, the best explanation of those facts is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Let's look then at that first contention more closely. I want to share four facts which are accepted by the large majority of New Testament historians today. Notice that my argument has nothing to do with the details of the gospel narratives. Differences in the secondary details of the narratives do not disturb historical scholars since such discrepancies are commonplace in historical writing. The question, rather, is whether these diverse accounts have a common historical core. The four facts, if I've shared them, represent what most scholars discern to be the historical core of the resurrection narratives, regardless of how they might assess the secondary details of the accounts. Fact number one, then, after his crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. Scholars have established the fact of Jesus' entombment on the basis of evidence such as the following. One, Jesus' burial is multiply attested in early independent sources. We have four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which have been collected into the New Testament, along with various letters of the Apostle Paul. Now, the burial account is part of Mark's source material for the story of Jesus' passion. This is a very early source, which is probably based upon eyewitness testimony, and which the commentator Rudolf Pesch has dated to within seven years of Jesus' crucifixion. Moreover, Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, also cites an extremely early source for Jesus' burial, 
which most scholars date to within a few years or even a few months of Jesus' crucifixion. Independent testimony for Jesus' burial by Joseph is also found in the sources behind Matthew and Luke and in the Gospel of John. Historians consider themselves to have hit historical pay dirt when they have two independent accounts of the same event. But we have the remarkable number of at least five independent sources for Jesus' burial, some of which are extraordinarily early. Two, as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. There was an understandable hostility in the early church toward the Jewish leadership. In Christian eyes, they had engineered a judicial murder of Jesus. And thus, according to the eminent New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, Jesus' burial by Joseph is very probable since it is almost inexplicable why Christians would make up a story about a Jewish Sanhedrist who does what is right for Jesus. For these and other reasons, most New Testament critics concur with Dale Allison's verdict that all in all, it is highly likely that Jesus' corpse was placed in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Fact number two, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. The wide majority of scholars also concur with this fact. Here, Dr. Hoover finds himself among that minority of scholars who deny the fact of the empty tomb. He claims that the empty tomb story is a late developing legend, which arose long after the eyewitnesses had passed off the scene. But the reasons which have convinced most scholars of the historicity of Jesus' empty tomb also go to refute the legend hypothesis. Let me mention five. One, the historical reliability of the burial story supports the empty tomb. If the account of Jesus' burial is accurate, then the site of Jesus' tomb was known in Jerusalem to Jew and Christian alike. But if that's the case, it's a very short inference to the historicity of the empty tomb. For if Jesus had not risen and the site of the tomb were known, then first of all, the disciples could never have believed in the resurrection of Jesus. For a first century Jew, the idea that a man might be raised from the dead while his corpse remained in the tomb was simply a contradiction in terms. Second, even if the disciples had believed in the resurrection of Jesus, it's doubtful they would have generated any following. So long as a corpse remained in the tomb, a Christian movement in Jerusalem founded on belief in the resurrection of Jesus would have been an impossible folly. And thirdly, the Jewish authorities would have exposed the whole affair. The quickest and surest answer to the disciples' proclamation of Jesus' resurrection would have been simply to point to his occupied tomb in the hillside, or if necessary, even to exhume the body. For these reasons, the accuracy of the burial story supports the historicity of the empty tomb. Unfortunately for those who deny the empty tomb, the account of Jesus' burial is widely recognized in the words of Cambridge uh, University scholar John A.T. Robinson as one of the earliest 
and best attested facts about Jesus. Two, the empty tomb is multiply attested by independent early sources. Mark's passion source didn't end with the burial, but rather with the story of the empty tomb, which is tied to the burial account verbally and grammatically. Thus, the empty tomb story cannot be a late developing legend. Moreover, Matthew and John rely on independent sources about the empty tomb. Jesus' empty tomb is also mentioned in the early sermons preserved in the Acts of the Apostles, and it's implied in the very old tradition handed on by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Thus, we have multiple early attestation of the fact of the empty tomb from at least four independent sources. Three, the tomb was discovered empty by women. In patriarchal Jewish society, the testimony of women was not highly regarded. In fact, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says that women weren't even permitted to serve as witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Now, in light of this fact, how remarkable it is that it is women who are the discoverers of Jesus' empty tomb. Any later legendary account would certainly have made male disciples, such as Peter and John, discover the empty tomb. The fact that it is women rather than men who are the chief witnesses to the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that they were the discoverers of the empty tomb and the gospel writers faithfully record what for them at least was an awkward and embarrassing fact. Four, the story is simple and lacks signs of theological embellishment. Mark's empty tomb story is uncolored by the theological and apologetical motifs that would be characteristic of a Christian legend. For example, it's remarkable that in Mark's account, the resurrection of Jesus is not really described at all. Contrast with this, later forged gospels in which Jesus is seen by a multitude of witnesses emerging from the tomb in glory. In Mark's account, there is no proof from prophecy cited, no mention of Jesus' descent into hell, no heralding of a new eon, no description of or reflection on the resurrection body, not even any use of glorious titles for Christ. Mark's story has all the earmarks of a very primitive tradition which is free of theological and apologetical reflection. Five, the earliest Jewish polemic presupposes the empty tomb. In the 28th chapter of Matthew, we find a Christian attempt to refute the earliest Jewish polemic against the resurrection. Now, what were Jews saying in response to the disciples' proclamation, he is risen from the dead, that his body still lay in the tomb in the hillside, that the disciples were madmen? No. They said the disciples came and stole away his body. Now, think about that for a minute. The disciples came and stole away his body. The earliest Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection was itself an attempt to explain why the body was missing. 
and thus the testimony of the very adversaries of the early Christian movement supports the historicity of the empty tomb. I could go on, but I think enough has been said to indicate why, in the words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist on the resurrection, by far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Fact number three. On different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact which is virtually universally acknowledged among New Testament scholars for the following reasons. One, Paul's list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances guarantees that such appearances occurred. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to his chief disciple, Peter, then to the inner circle of disciples known as the Twelve. Then he appeared to a group of 500 disciples at once, then to his younger brother, James, who at that time was apparently not even a believer, then to all the apostles. Finally, Paul adds, he appeared also to me at the time when Paul was still himself a persecuting non-believer of the early Jesus movement. Given the early date of Paul's information, as well as his personal acquaintance with the people involved, these appearances cannot be dismissed as unhistorical. Two, the resurrection appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation of the appearances. For example, the appearance to Peter is attested by Luke and Paul. The appearance to the Twelve is attested by Luke, John, and Paul. The appearance to the women is attested by Matthew and Luke, or John, rather. The appearance narratives thus span such a breadth of independent sources that it cannot be reasonably denied that the earliest disciples did have such experiences. Thus, even the skeptical German New Testament critic, Gert Ludemann, concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Finally, fact number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead. And Jewish messianic expectations included no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies would be shamefully executed by them as a criminal. Two, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. But then the obvious question arises, what caused them to believe such an un-Jewish and outlandish thing. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar at Emory University, muses, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. 
N.T. Wright, an eminent British uh, New Testament historian, concludes, that is why as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. In summary, there are four facts agreed upon by the majority of scholars who have written on the subject. Jesus' burial, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. That brings us then to my second main contention. The best explanation of these facts is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, historian C.B. McCullough lists six tests which historians use in determining what is the best explanation for given historical facts. The hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, passes all of these tests. One, it has great explanatory scope. It explains why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. Two, it has great explanatory power. It explains why the body of Jesus was gone, why people uh, unexpectedly saw Jesus alive despite his earlier public execution and so forth. Three, it is plausible, given the historical context of Jesus' own unparalleled life and claims, the resurrection serves as divine vindication of those radical claims. Four, it is not ad hoc or contrived. It requires only one additional hypothesis that God exists. And even that needn't be an additional hypothesis if you already believe in God's existence. Five, it is in accord with accepted beliefs. The hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, does not in any way conflict with the accepted belief that people don't rise naturally from the dead. The Christian accepts that belief as wholeheartedly as he accepts the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. And finally, number six, it outstrips any rival theories in meeting conditions one to five. Down through history, various alternative uh, uh, explanations of the facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy theory, the apparent death theory, the hallucination theory, and so on. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. No naturalistic hypothesis has attracted a great number of thinkers. So, in conclusion, I think we can say with some confidence that a person who believes on historical grounds that Jesus rose bodily from the dead violates no canon of rationality in so doing. The rational man can hardly be blamed if he concludes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. I too would like to express my thanks to uh, Millsaps College and to Third Millennium Faith for sponsoring this event and to express my uh, feeling of it's being an honor to share the stage with a scholar and debater of Dr. Craig's uh, reputation and renown. I'm also glad to see that so many of you from Millsaps College and from Jackson and the region are willing to spend some time this evening engaging in some serious thought about this uh, very important topic. And in his opening statement, Dr. Craig has argued that early Christian claims about the resurrection of Jesus began as a response to a supernatural miracle. 
In my opening statement, I will argue that early Christian claims about the resurrection of Jesus began as an affirmation of faith. So contrary to what Dr. Craig seems to be expecting from me in my opening statement, I'm not here to give a series of no's to his yeses, his affirmations. I'm here to to say yes to an alternative view. The best place to begin if one wants to understand what the early Christian affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus was really all about, in my view, is with the fact that the idea of resurrection was a Jewish idea for some two centuries before it became a Christian idea. The idea of resurrection did not come like a bolt out of the blue to Jesus' followers after his crucifixion. It was already a familiar idea to them. The first reference to the hope of resurrection in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, or as Professor Boley would like to say, to those Israelite and early Jewish scrolls, as you may know, is in the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel, which was probably written between the years 167 and 164 before the Common Era by a devout Jew who was confronted by severe persecution at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria at the time and the ruler of of Palestine at the time. In the midst of that terrifying distress, Daniel had a vision of an angel who assured him that the people of Israel would be delivered and, quote, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel is told that those who, like him, lead their people to remain faithful to God's law will shine like the stars forever and ever. What the angel revealed to to Daniel encouraged him to believe that even though it may seem expedient to submit to the demands of the Syrian king, in the end it will become clear to all that being obedient to God's demands is what really matters. The first two books of Maccabees in the Old Testament Apocrypha, as we commonly refer to them, both probably written early in the first century before the Common Era, that is roughly 100 years before the birth of Jesus, tell the story of the persecution reflected in the book of Daniel in more detail. These Jewish texts tell us how the Syrian king issued a decree that banned all Jewish religious observances and threatened to execute any who would defy his command. In 2 Maccabees, we read the story of a mother and her seven sons who were executed by the Syrian king one after the other because they refused to violate Jewish religious law in compliance with the king's direct command. When the second brother had been nearly tortured to death, he said to the king, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. Another brother says to the king, as he is near death, one cannot but choose to die at the hand of mortals and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. 
This heroic mother and her seven sons refused to disobey God's law, even though it cost them their lives, because they believed that in the end God would raise them from the dead. And then it would become clear to all that obedience to God's commands is what really matters. This Jewish hope in the resurrection was not a mere flash-in-the-pan belief. It persisted among devout Jews well past the period in which Jesus lived. For example, following the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in the year 70 of the Common Era during the Jewish-Roman War, a deeply troubled Jewish man who wrote the text we know as Second Esdras asks God why the Romans had been allowed to win the war and destroy Jerusalem. My heart failed me, he says to God, because I have seen how you have destroyed your people and protected your enemies and have not shown to anyone how your way may be comprehended. An angel comes to the author of this text, explains that in the not distant future, God will raise the dead, sentence the ungodly to the place of punishment, but lead the righteous into a paradise of delight. So in this Jewish text also, written about the same time that the Gospels of the New Testament were written, and two centuries after the book of Daniel was written, it is again affirmed that in the end, being faithful to God's law, that is to say, doing what is, what is right, maintaining your integrity, is what really matters. So the idea of resurrection appeared in the history of the religion of Israel as an affirmation of faith and hope in the face of disconfirming circumstances, when committing oneself to live under the rule of God seemed at the time a strategy for losers. There is good reason, I think, to believe that that is how the idea of resurrection was introduced into the story of Jesus also, as an affirmation of faith and hope in the face of the stark, disconfirming fact of his crucifixion, when in spite of his confident message about the kingdom of God, Jesus of Nazareth was eliminated by the kingdom of Rome. The best reason for thinking that the early Christian claims about the resurrection of Jesus began as an affirmation of faith is found in the evidence provided by the Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter of his first letter to believers in Corinth. The evidence of this text is especially important for several reasons. First, Paul is the only New Testament writer who claims to have seen the risen Jesus himself. No gospel author claims this. Second, Paul's letters are the earliest Christian writings we have. 1 Corinthians was probably written in the early 50s of the Common Era. The New Testament Gospels were all written from 20 to 40 years or even more later than were Paul's letters. Third, Paul begins his argument for the credibility of the idea of resurrection in this chapter, 15 of 1 Corinthians, by quoting an early Christian confession of faith that he had received from those who preceded him in the Jesus movement and that he had passed on to the Corinthians. This means, as Dr. Craig said, it is among the earliest confessions of Christian faith that we have, 
going back to the time of Paul's conversion and calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles, perhaps about three years after Jesus' crucifixion. I suggest we should look very carefully at how this early confession of faith is formulated. It furnishes us with some very revealing information about what these early Christians, including Paul himself, thought they were claiming when they said that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul tells the Corinthians, quote, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Then he quotes the creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Professor Richard Hayes says, the confession of faith itself consists of four clauses. The first and third are the fundamental faith affirmations, while the second and the fourth provide what Mr. Hayes calls supporting warrants for the fundamental claims in the other two clauses. In other words, the two principal statements of this confession are those said to be according to the scriptures. The other two lines, he was buried, he was seen, or he appeared, serve as assurances that what is claimed in the two principal statements is really so. German New Testament scholar Hans Konselmann agrees. The two clauses, he was buried and he was seen, are added, Konselmann suggests, as verifications of the two fundamental statements that Jesus died and was raised. So then, if we ask what this early confession of faith indicates about the origin of the early Christians' claim that God raised Jesus from the dead, the answer is that their claim originated as an affirmation of faith based on Scripture as they interpreted it, which was then verified, they believe, when Peter, followed by the Twelve and others, including Paul, reported that they had seen the risen Lord. In this early confession, the affirmation of Jesus' resurrection precedes the reference to the appearances logically and very probably preceded the appearances chronologically as well. So it seems reasonable to conclude that the appearances of the risen Jesus or their visions of the risen Jesus were understood by his followers as a confirmation of their faith not as the basis of their faith. Well, by now, an obvious question has no doubt occurred to you. If the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead originated as an affirmation of faith, where did the Easter stories about the empty tomb come from? The answer is, I suggest, that the faith that God raised Jesus from the dead generated the empty tomb stories, the empty tomb stories did not generate that faith. However counterintuitive that may seem to you or to some of you, I suggest there is significant evidence in the New Testament writings themselves that that was indeed the case. First, there is Paul's own testimony that he has seen the risen Jesus. Paul uses exactly the same language about the appearance of the risen Jesus to him as he does about every other appearance that he lists in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 15. The, Greek, the key Greek word here is ophthe, 
It's the aorist passive form of the verb orao, which means to see. The fact that Paul uses the same language about his own vision of the risen Jesus as he does about all of the other appearances in his list strongly implies that he regards Jesus' appearance to him as the same kind of phenomenon as Jesus' appearance to them. We should also take note of the fact that neither here nor anywhere else in his letters does Paul specifically mention the story of the empty tomb. It appears that the story of the empty tomb played no role at all in persuading Paul that God had raised Jesus from the dead. There's no evidence that Paul had ever heard the story the Gospels tell about the empty tomb. He never mentions it. There's more. Consider this. Whereas the Gospels themselves treat the crucifixion of Jesus as a public event, they treat his resurrection as a private event. The Gospels report the crucifixion of Jesus as a public spectacle. If CNN had been up and running at the time, you could have seen a film clip of the crucifixion on the evening news. C-SPAN could have telecast the whole grisly thing live. The Gospel authors leave no doubt that in telling the story about Jesus' execution, they were writing about something that actually happened in full public view. In the Eastern narratives, on the other hand, in the Gospel texts themselves, mind you, the risen Jesus appears nowhere in public. The risen Jesus appears only to a few, all of whom either had been his followers or became believers. So the gospel authors themselves indicate by the way they tell the Easter stories and the kinds of Easter stories they tell that the resurrection of Jesus was not an historical event in the ordinary sense of that term. It was not something open to public observation or verification, which is what we generally take to be uh, the nature of an event, an actual event in history. Rather, it was something that happened in the private experience of some of Jesus' followers. Finally, it should be observed that whereas the stories about Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels are substantially similar, the stories about his resurrection are substantially different. And here, Dr. Craig and I read the evidence rather differently. What that indicates is that there is no common tradition behind the Easter narratives in the Gospels. Each Gospel author was therefore free to compose his own imaginative tale about how it must have been, just as Matthew and Luke did in creating their very different Christmas stories. You know, of course, that we don't have one Christmas story in the Gospels. We have two different stories. For example, no wise men in Luke, no shepherds in Matthew. Just one little sliver of evidence. There's no common tradition behind those birth stories either. They are both the plausible tales of gospel authors writing a story that the, of the Jesus' birth, which they believed was coherent with and suitable for the kind of hero that their gospels are written about. Theologian Paul Tillich got all of this right, I think, when he wrote... One could say that in the minds of the writers of the New Testament, the cross is both an event and a symbol 
and the resurrection is both a symbol and an event. What Tillich meant is that the crucifixion of Jesus was an historical event that became a religious symbol. And the resurrection of Jesus was a religious symbol that came to be spoken about as if it were an historical event. Tillich's point, simply put, is that the crucifixion was first of all an historical event. The resurrection was first of all a faith event. So the conclusion which I draw from this evidence and this analysis of the evidence is that the earliest and best evidence shows that the early Christian claim that God raised Jesus from the dead began as an affirmation of their faith. You'll recall that in my opening statement, I said I would defend two contentions in tonight's debate. First of all, that any adequate historical hypothesis must be able to explain four facts about Jesus of Nazareth, his burial, the empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Now, the proposal that Professor Hoover seems to offer us is basically that the resurrection, the belief in the resurrection, is the result of the attempt of the disciples to provide themselves with some sort of hope or consolation in the face of catastrophe, and that therefore the belief in Jesus' resurrection originated as a sort of compensatory mechanism or wishful thinking in order to uh, help them with the tragedy of the death of Jesus. Does this account for those four facts that I listed? Well, I think not. Number one, the burial by Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, we saw that the burial is attested in early independent sources and therefore is accepted by the wide majority of New Testament scholars today. Mark Allen Powell, who is the head of the Historical Jesus section of the Society of Biblical Literature, reports that the dominant view is that the passion narratives are early and based on eyewitness testimony. And the burial account is included in that pre-Mark and Passion story. So we're not dependent simply upon Paul's information. We have early sources uh, behind the Gospels that go back to within seven years of the crucifixion. Secondly, I argued that Joseph is not a Christian invention because a Christian legend would have made, say, Mary or the faithful disciples bury Jesus, not a hated member of the Sanhedrin. So this fact is historical, and it is unexplained by anything that Professor Hoover has said tonight. Now, why is that significant? Well, you remember my second point was the discovery of the empty tomb. And the first argument in favor of the empty tomb was that the burial story supports it. If the site of Jesus' grave was known in Jerusalem to Jew and Christian alike, it would have been impossible for a movement based on the belief in the resurrection of that dead man to flourish in the face of an occupied tomb. And so Dr. Hoover has got to answer this point. Secondly, I also showed that there's early independent sources in support of the empty tomb, four of them at least. All Dr. Hoover says here is that Paul doesn't mention the empty tomb. No, he doesn't mention it, but he implies it. What Paul says is Christ was buried and then he was raised. And no first century Palestinian Jew could have asked or thought 
by, thereby that the grave still contained the corpse, that the, the grave wasn't empty. Uh, according to E.E. E. Ellis, who is a prominent New Testament scholar, to the earliest Palestinian Christians, a resurrection without an empty grave would have been about as meaningful as a square circle. So Paul certainly believed in and implies the empty tomb, but the more important point is that we have multiple independent attestation of this. We're not just dependent upon Paul. Now, Dr. Hoover also raises a linguistic point. He says Paul is citing a four-line formula there, and the burial and appearances go to undergird the death and the resurrection. Now, I think that's a, a misunderstanding of Paul's uh, formula there. This formula in the Greek is ordered by four lines, each beginning with and that, chi hati. These particles, these conjunctions show that each line of the formula is to be given equal weight and importance. Moreover, when you compare that formula with the gospel narratives on the one hand and the sermons and the acts of the apostles on the other, you find that this formula is an outline of the events of the passion narrative, the crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb, and the appearances. So we mustn't diminish the importance of what Paul is saying there. When he says, and he was raised, that is a summary of the empty tomb account. He certainly believed in it and implied it, I think. Thirdly, I argued that the women witnesses are plausibly historical, since any legendary account would have made male disciples discover the tomb. I pointed out, number four, that the narrative is simple and lacks signs of legendary embellishment. And finally, that the very enemies of the earliest Christian movement argued for, in favor of the empty tomb by trying to explain how the body was missing. All of this is evidence that has to be dealt with by Dr. Hoover if he's going to maintain that the resurrection was just the result of wishful thinking or trying to maintain hope in the face of catastrophe. The empty tomb, I think, is solidly historical, and most scholars agree with that. Thirdly, I said, the uh, post-mortem appearances of Jesus are historical. And here I looked at Paul's list of the appearances. What Dr. Hoover says here is that Paul's use of the word ophe, he appeared, shows that all of the appearances were of the same nature as his visionary experience. That is simply false. The word ophe, as you can show in uh, Greek uh, literature of the time, can describe the appearance of physical objects as a person coming out from behind a corner or behind a tree. It has no implication of visionary seeing whatsoever, and so is entirely consistent with a physical resurrection appearance. Moreover, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is trying to raise the appearance to him to the level of objectivity and reality as the disciples. He's not trying to drag their experience down to his level. He wants to show that what he experienced was just as real and objective as what they experienced, and therefore there's no basis for thinking that all of the appearances were merely visionary or mental experiences. Dr. Hoover said, but these appearances listed by Paul occurred only to a few people. I beg to differ. There were group appearances of Jesus, not only to the 12, but to the 500 disciples at one time. Moreover, they took place not just to believers, but to unbelievers, people like James, Jesus' younger brother, and Saul of Tarsus, an early persecutor of the Jesus movement. So you can't just write off these experiences as some sort of hallucinatory, uh, self-induced uh, seeings because they uh, were in groups, they were uh, with unbelievers as well as believers, uh, and uh, therefore I think we have good grounds for saying that there were these post-mortem appearances of Jesus. 
The second point I made in support of that was that we have multiple independent attestation of these, in any case, in the gospel narratives as well as in Paul, and this is one of the prime criteria for authenticity. So Dr. Hoover has got to explain these appearances. He's, if he denies that they occurred, he's got to give us some sort of explanation as to what these were. Fourthly, I argue that the very origin of the disciples' belief uh, is a fact. Now, what he does offer here is an explanation by saying resurrection was part of Jewish hope, and what the re belief in the resurrection of Jesus did was give the disciples hope in the face of his death. But I want to suggest that it is the very Jewishness of this belief that made it inapplicable to Jesus of Nazareth when they were confronted with his crucifixion. As I said in my opening speech, there is no concept in Judaism of a Messiah who, instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies and establishing the throne of David in Jerusalem, is killed and executed by them as a criminal in the most shameful of manners. Messianic movements were a dime a dozen in the century before and after Jesus, and the Romans dispatched all of these would-be messiahs in the same way. And if your favorite messiah got himself crucified, you basically had two choices. Either you went home or you got yourself a new messiah. But in no case in the century across uh, the time before Jesus and the century following Jesus, in no case do we find anywhere a claim by any Messianic group that their would-be Messiah was in fact Messiah after all and was risen from the dead. There was simply no connection between uh, being Messiah and being raised from the dead. Secondly, though, I pointed out that the Jewish belief in the resurrection uh, always concerned the resurrection at the end of the world, the general resurrection of all the dead, never of an isolated individual within history. Given Jewish beliefs about the resurrection, the disciples would never have connected this with Jesus of Nazareth. As Joachim Jeremias, the renowned German New Testament scholar, puts it, nowhere does one find in the literature of ancient Judaism anything comparable to the resurrection of Jesus. Confronted with Jesus' crucifixion, what the disciples, as good first century Palestinian Jews would have done, was simply preserve their master's tomb as a shrine where his bones would reside until the resurrection at the end of the world when he and they would be all united with the righteous dead of Israel in the kingdom of God, just like the hope of the Maccabean martyrs. But they would never have come to adopt so absurd and un-Jewish a belief as that he was somehow already risen from the dead. So I find this attempt to explain away the origin of the disciples' belief uh, quite unpersuasive and indeed quite anachronistic when we understand the beliefs about the resurrection in first century Judaism. My second contention then was that the best explanation of these facts is Jesus' resurrection. And we saw that the resurrection has the explanatory scope, power, plausibility, and so forth to explain all the facts. By contrast, Dr. Hoover's uh, account doesn't explain the burial, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances. It doesn't even succeed in explaining the origin of the Christian faith. The reason that Dr. Hoover, I think, is committed to this explanation is simply because of his commitment to scientific naturalism. He doesn't accept that miracles occur because he doesn't accept that there is a personal God distinct from the world who is capable of acting in history. This is what he says in his written work on the resurrection in which I've collaborated with him. So really I think this is a debate about the existence of God at the bottom line. If you believe in the existence of God as traditionally conceived, 
then it seems to me very difficult to deny that the resurrection of Jesus is indeed the best explanation of the facts. This is kind of fun, don't you think? I mean, it's a serious topic. It's a very serious topic. It's a very significant topic. It means a great deal to how we understand Christian faith. But doing it in this fashion is, um, is almost a kind of, uh, uh, what's the right term? Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of uh, spectator sport, if you will. Uh, I think one of the, um, one of the advantage, advantages to all of you, and I hope in a, in a way it's sort of the principal uh, value you derive from our exchange is that you will have an idea when you leave this auditorium that you have heard two alternative interpretations of what the resurrection of Jesus really was in the first place and what it means. Um, I, I doubt that this debate is going to be resolved not only between Dr. Craig and I, I doubt very much we're going to leave the hall agreeing about everything, and I doubt that uh, many of you in the, audit in, the, uh, in the seats out there are going to leave the auditorium thinking that you are finally resolved in your own mind about every detail of the argument you've heard. So hearing the two alternatives, stimulating your own thought, that's what this ought to be about. I, I would like to say one other thing, uh, one other, make up one other comment by way of preface to my response to Dr. Craig's um, alleged four historical facts, that I don't regard uh, saying that the resurrection began as the disciples' affirmation of faith as merely compensatory wish fulfillment or uh, uh, wishful thinking. Uh, I think that demeans what a genuinely deep religious faith really is about and really means. It means believing in something that you think is deeply true about human life. That's not a trivial matter, and it's not hallucinatory. Now, if I may be uh, a little more play, uh, if I can make, continue to be somewhat playful here, uh, I'm going to respond to Dr. Craig's four historical facts case by doing what a little bit, something a little bit like what I used to do when I was a, te a classroom teacher, and that is uh, to assign a kind of grade to, uh, to his argument. Uh, so in my view, not more than one and a half of Dr. Craig's list of four historical facts can really be regarded as historically factual, and that in this reduced condition, they are unable to sustain his case. That Jesus was buried after he was executed is specifically included in the tradition that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, that confession that I uh, uh, emphasized in my opening statement. Uh, and Paul accepts that, the fact that Jesus is buried as early Christian tradition. But he says nothing more than that. Jesus was buried, period. That's all Paul says. And furthermore, as you've been able to see, Dr. Craig and I read the evidence of that confession differently. I see it as a four-part confession of faith. He sees it as an outline of the story of the empty tomb, which Paul never mentions. I think that outline of the empty tomb exists in Dr. Craig's head. It does not exist in the text of 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15 is a confession of faith without mention of the empty tomb. So only half a point there. Furthermore, there are good reasons for Dr. Craig makes much of the, of the claim, of the allegation, that uh, the fact that somebody named Joseph of Arimathea played such a highly visible role in the story of the empty tomb in the gospel narratives uh, helps to sustain the claim that the gospels are reporting actual historical history. They are eyewitness accounts of things that actually happened, and therefore it's an important evidence for the actual existence of the empty tomb, because they know where the tomb is. Not so fast. There are good reasons to think that Joseph of Arimathea and his upper-class, newly carved-in-the-rock tomb are the products of the storyteller's imagination. This embellishment in the gospel stories provides the dishonorably executed Jesus with an honorable burial. It is, to be sure, an appealing element in the imaginative story the gospels tell, but it's not a good candidate for the status of historical fact. Let me give you some of the features of the story that lead some of us to think that we're dealing here with early Christian piety and fiction, Uh, a a kind of retrospective imagination of what must have happened rather than an eyewitness account of what actually happened. Keep in mind that the gospel texts themselves say that after Jesus' arrest, his disciples forsook him and fled. Whether there were any eyewitnesses there to observe what actually happened to Jesus after that point is a matter of question. It's to be noted that Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned only here in the Gospels and is otherwise unknown. Uh, The fact that he plays such a prominent role in this dramatic story and then simply disappears rather than continues the story in, let's say, in the book of Acts as a member of the Jerusalem church is a puzzlement. Furthermore, the location of the town or village of Arimathea cannot be determined with any assurance. No archaeologist or geographer has ever been able to locate the place, and in no ancient text is Arimathea ever mentioned. Nobody knows about it. Furthermore, the gospel accounts differ on who this Joseph is. In Mark, he is a member of the Jewish council that condemned Jesus and sent him to Pilate. In Luke, he is a member of the council who did not agree with the decision. In Matthew, He is a rich man, as he would be for anybody who had a rock-hewn tomb. Jesus was not a rich man. Joseph is a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. But there is no mention of his being a member of the council in Matthew. In John also, he is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he is afraid of the Jews. And he is subsequently joined by Nicodemus, of all people, in preparing Jesus' body for burial. Finally, in the Gospel of Peter, a, uh, an apocryphal gospel of the second century, Joseph is a friend of Pilate who asks for Jesus' body. Now, perhaps you can understand, even if you don't agree, why some of us would take all of that difference in detail that Dr. Craig wants to dismiss as peripheral as clues about the nature of the story we are being told. Gospel authors are being entertaining and imaginative historically imaginative, no doubt, and trying to invent some way to think, uh, to explain uh, what must have happened. Uh, and uh, I, wish, uh, I wish there had been an independent 
uh, sort of accountant while Dr. Craig was making his rebuttal to count the number of subjunctive moods uh, that occurred in his speech. How many things should have been, would have been, could have been, must have been. These are not facts, friends. These are inferences. Uh, and one should take note of those inferences in hearing an account. I have to hurry here. Let's see. How much time do I have left? Three minutes. Okay. Uh, let me make two other points. Uh, one has to do with the nature of the visions that Paul lists, Ophthe. Dr. Craig claims that there's a difference between uh, the appearance of something real and, shall we say, something like an hallucinatory vision of something unreal. I don't think that holds up. And I'm not saying that the, that the use of the term Ophthe in 1 Corinthians 15 includes all of the references to visions that the Apostle Paul says he had. For example, his lengthy account in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, I think it is. I'm restricting that comment to his list of witnesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, last of all, in which he lists himself and saying he uses the same language about his own experience as theirs. What, what Paul claims, let's see, um, it seems to me it's more, most likely that what those vision, visionary experiences are are the same as the, the reference to the vision of the first Christian martyr, so-called, in the seventh chapter of Acts, Stephen. As Luke tells that story, Stephen saw the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here the Jesus whom Stephen sees is the now exalted Lord in heaven. That is also, I think, the best way to understand Paul's own experience and that of the people, the persons he names in his list of witnesses. Now, the idea is that the exalted Lord appears on these occasions from heaven. Finally, as for the claim that the original disciples believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every reason not to. Um, or that, uh, as Dr. Cray emphasized, it's, it's simply not credible that the disciples could have claimed Jesus, I have one minute, uh, claimed uh, Jesus' resurrection when the Jews all expected the resurrection would come at the end of time and that the Messiah certainly would not be executed. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, really uh, exults precisely in God's great surprise. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, 1.25 that God, in allowing the Messiah to be crucified and raising him from the dead and making him Messiah and Lord, has outwitted even the best and the brightest and has shown up the powerful. Not even the best and the brightest saw this coming. And the powerful, God showed them up because they were not in control, finally. God is in control. And finally, Paul did see Jesus' resurrection as an event of the end time. He says in 1 Corinthians 15:20, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. That's a harvest term. It means the whole harvest, the general resurrection, is coming soon. microphone is, is alive. It keeps twisting. Um, just so you'll know where we are, now our participants will get a chance to directly 
I don't want to use the word interrogate, but engage one another. And we will begin, I think, with Dr. Craig addressing questions to Dr. Hoover and then reciprocate uh, in kind. Ten minutes apiece for this. You can just remain seated at the table. Okay. Um, let's begin by trying to understand your view. Is it your view, then, that the disciples following Jesus' crucifixion were so devastated and crushed by their master's um, death that they latched upon this Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead and applied this to Jesus and convinced themselves that he was literally risen from the dead? I think the, I think the, uh, the uh, disciples of Jesus believed in what Jesus was proclaiming during his earthly ministry. That is to say, I take it that Jesus, the theme of Jesus' preaching and teaching was the kingdom of God. And he appealed to people to put their faith in God's rule rather than other rules which were around them at the time, whether it's the, uh, the rule of the Roman Empire uh, or whatever. And that uh, that... A message and that appeal to put their trust in the rule of God, one could say received a traumatic blow when Jesus was executed and that dream seemed to vaporize. At that point, yes, I do think that the disciples turned to what was a familiar idea in Jewish piety and had been for some time, that even though good people can be executed, God will not abandon them. God will be faithful to their faithfulness and will raise them from the dead. And it was a kind of natural move for them to say, Jesus was right about God and about the kingdom of God, and God will vindicate them. And they made that as an affirmation okay, of faith. Okay, now, they, he vindicated him. But, I mean, do you think that this, these original disciples believed, at least then, that Jesus was physically risen from the dead? Well, you keep using the word physically. Right. Uh, Jesus, uh, I remind you of the passage, uh, Paul's uh, quotation of the so-called Christ hymn in the second chapter of Philippians, where uh, the figure of Jesus as one who is obedient unto death is exalted and given the name above every name and so on. There's no mention of a physical resurrection. That is a celebration of Jesus' exaltation to, in effect, the right hand of God, that is to say, to a position of power of the okay, cosmos. Okay, so you're... you're so it's, it's a... Um, it's certainly a transformation of Jesus' status, but no point is made about it being a physical resurrection. Okay, so in your view then, this is a change of the status of Jesus, uh, somehow exalted heaven, but your, your claim is that these primitive early Christians didn't really believe that anything happened to the corpse at all. They didn't really believe that he was risen from the dead, but simply exalted in status to God's right hand. Well, I didn't really believe anything happened to the corpse. Um, the, the, the mother of the seven brothers who were executed in 2 Maccabees says in that same chapter, uh, she spells out her reasons for having confidence that God will raise her and her sons from the dead, even if the Syrian king executes them. She says... Uh, 
It was not I who brought you into the world in the first place. God created you in my womb and brought you into the world. And I believe that that good power which brought you to life in the first place is capable of bringing you to life in the second place. Yes, and okay? those Maccabean martyrs interpreted this as a literal physical resurrection. The one son holding his entrails as he died said, this body will live again. The, the Jewish hope was universally a hope in the physical resurrection of the dead. And, and yet you're maintaining that when they said this about Jesus, they didn't really mean it in that way. It was just a, cl a claim about his status being changed. Well, it's not merely about status. It's a transformation of the, of the being of the person. Uh, the Paul being, but not including well, the physical body. Paul talks body. about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam is of the earth, an earthly creature. The yeah. second Adam is from heaven, a heavenly creature. So they're, they are related in some, in some Paul way. Paul talks but about the resurrection the body, doesn't he? The soma that will be raised. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, by and that, he talks about the difference between a physical body and a spiritual body. And so you interpret that to mean that the body of Jesus in effect, really wasn't the subject of the resurrection. It's just this, uh, he's now exalted. Now, if that's the claim, um, I think you're forced with, or the question presses very hard upon you then, how is it that the disciples ever came to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus at all? This is not the Jewish concept of resurrection, as N.T. Wright has shown. That concept was universally a physical concept concerning the remains, principally the bones, of the dead man, why didn't they simply proclaim that God has exalted Jesus to heaven? Where did this idea of the resurrection suddenly come in? Well, that's, that's the form of the hope. That's the, that's the traditional form of the hope. Uh, I don't think, uh, and while I've made much of the, of the fact that uh, resurrection was a Jewish idea before it became a Christian idea, which is, of course, the case, it doesn't mean that the Christian idea was exactly like the Jewish idea right. in, uh, in all respects. Right, and, and okay. as N.T. Wright has emphasized, you need to provide some sort of explanation for these Christian, as he calls them, mutations of the Jewish idea of resurrection, principally that it's now applied to Messiah. It, it is now separated from the general resurrection at the end of the world, and it's within history. It's not separated from the, from the general resurrection Chronologically at the end of the world. separated. Pardon me? Chronologically separated. Briefly. And that's part of God's surprise. That's what yeah. Paul exalts in. You guys didn't see it coming. Look what, look what the wonderful thing God has done. Right, right. Okay, uh, but I'm still puzzled as to why Jews who use the concept of resurrection to describe what happens to a dead man in the tomb, principally the bones, would have adopted such misleading and un, uh, uncharacteristic language to express what you think they actually believed in in. And indeed, why does an empty tomb legend and all of this even originate if all they believed was there was a change of status for Jesus? Well, you keep talking, you say just a change in status. There was certainly well, a change in words. his condition, not just his status. Uh, pardon me? There was a change in his condition, not just But in not his in status. the condition of the, yeah. of the corpse. <laughs> Right? On your view. You know, I, I really think that, that uh, you make that argument because it's important for us in a fact-oriented culture to insist upon that. And uh, it's more important for us to think that way than it was for people in antiquity to think well, that I, way. Well, on the contrary, I, what I'm trying to understand is the Jewish <clears throat> first century 
understanding of resurrection from the dead and what a Jew meant when he said he is risen from the dead. And, and as I understand this, it, universally it was a description of what happened to the bones of the dead person. That's why they kept the bones in ossuaries. Well, if, you know, if that were that crucial, then I would, uh, if, if, if the empty tomb and the physical resurrection of Jesus were as important to the Apostle Paul as it appears to be to you, I can't imagine Paul never mentioning it. I mean, well, you, you, that, now you, that's not you build difficult your case to understand. Paul doesn't build his case on it. No, but, but what case is he trying to show for the Corinthians? He's not trying to uh, convince the Corinthians of the empty tomb. They, it was the very physicality of the resurrection that they gagged at. And so his goal in 1 Corinthians 15 is to show them that this isn't just the resuscitation of a corpse, it's a transformation of the physical body to this supernatural, immortal, powerful, spirit-directed body. So there's no point in mentioning the empty tomb explicitly. And, and well, what about the point that I made that in saying he was buried and he was raised, for any first century Jew that would imply an empty grave was left behind? Uh, I call your attention to the fact that you, uh, you're resting your case on an implication rather than on a specific claim made in the text, which says that you're interested in the detail, shall we say, in a way that the authors of the text were not. Well, I, I think what bothers me is that you're, you're arguing from silence. You're saying because Paul doesn't mention the empty tomb, even though he says he was buried and was raised, that somehow that means the empty tomb isn't historical. Uh, uh, argument from silence, Bill. I think you're the one who's arguing from silence. Paul is silent about this. Well, but my argument isn't based on, on, on Paul. You, you brought up Paul. My argument was based on the pre-Mark and Passion story and several other multiple independent sources that attest to the the empty tomb. I said at least four sources, and that's not counting Paul. I think Paul is consistent with the empty tomb, but what about the pre-Mark and Passion story? Well, you say there are four, or I think at one point you said there are five. Five for the burial account, four five for, for the, the empty what? tomb. Five? For the burial account. For the burial. Uh, you say there are five. Uh, my counting says there are not more than two. That Mark's Passion story is the Passion story that Matthew and Luke base their accounts on. That's mm -hmm. the primary source of their passion story. So there are three Gospels and one source. Uh, it's a matter of scholarly dispute as to whether John, John, the author of John's Gospel, had an independent source for his account of the passion narrative or whether he also used Mark's source. So uh, if he had an independent source, that would be two, although that's disputed. So I don't see the five independent sources. Okay. Now, we're reading the evidence different. Okay. Well, that was a pretty fast ten minutes, I thought. That just whizzed right by me. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, Bill, a question about the relationship between the emphasis you make on the emptiness of the tomb and the physicality of the resurrection uh, which, as I read the Easter narratives and the Gospel, is one of the elements of the story, and there are a number of other elements of the Easter story about which you mentioned you say nothing. Uh, as you read the stories in the Gospels, um, Well, let me just go through a, little, a quick list here. Uh, there's a difference in, in what the Gospels uh, accounts uh, report about the angels. Uh, an about angel what? is sitting inside the tomb and at its right, on 
its right side, according to Mark. Literally, a young man in a white robe. In Matthew's account, there is a great earthquake. An angel descends from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance is like lightning, and his garment is white as snow. Actual historical event? Why do you suppose that Mark doesn't mention this? Luke says, does not report any of this, but says that the women emptied the tomb, found it empty, were perplexed, and then saw two men in dazzling appearance standing beside them who gave them instructions. In John, no angel appears at the empty tomb. Did angels really appear? Mary sees angels at the empty tomb. I beg your pardon? In John, Mary sees angels at the empty tomb. No, she sees someone she doesn't recognize in the garden and turns out to be Jesus, mm-hmm. not an angel. Uh, was there an earthquake? Which gospel account is, uh, is, is, is telling us uh, the accurate story? Finally, and this is the most, the most important element, uh, Luke, in concluding his Easter narrative, speaks about Jesus' ascension into heaven. He tells that story briefly in the gospel at the end of the Uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then in the first paragraph or so of the Acts of the Apostles, also written by Luke, most of us believe, Jesus ascends into the heaven from the Mount of Olives. He disappears into a cloud, after which two men stood beside the gazing disciples and told them... uh, Now, is there a question in this uh, for me? Here's the question. Here's the question. I I wanted the detail because I think the detail is important, not just the bald question. Here's the bald question. Did Jesus actually ascend into heaven? If so, where did he go? And does your understanding of your answer to that question correspond exactly to what the first century authors of the Gospels assumed, Luke in in this case, uh, what he assumed when when he made that claim? Okay. First of all, John does mention the angels at the tomb. Matthew, or rather John chapter 20, verse 11 Uh, Mary beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And then they ask her a question, and she responds to the angel. So the angel is a part of all of the gospel. Thank you for that. uh, I stand corrected on that point. uh, Gospel narratives. But the more important point is, as I said in my first speech, I'm not basing my case upon the secondary details of these narratives, but upon what scholars recognize to be the common historical core in these narratives. Given all of their divergencies and the secondary circumstantial details, I'm staking my claim upon the common historical core of these narratives that women discovered the tomb empty on the first day of the week following the crucifixion. And that, I think, is solidly established, whatever you think about the historicity of angels and so forth. Now, as for the ascension of Jesus, I do believe in the ascension of Jesus, and I would say what it means is that Jesus of Nazareth has exited our four-dimensional space-time continuum, uh, and that, uh, therefore, he no longer exists in this space-time continuum that you and I inhabit. Um, I don't read anything about a four-dimensional space-time continuum in the Gospels. No. What it says is he ascended to heaven, but I'm telling you in modern parlance what I understand that to be. You ask me, where is he? And so my answer is given in contemporary understanding that it means uh, that Jesus of Nazareth exited our four-dimensional space-time world that we inhabit. And I don't see any incoherence or problem with that. Well, what you've just done is shift major worldviews. You've shifted in that statement from an ancient worldview in which the notion of divine beings, 
residing up there just beyond sight in the universe where the earth is the center of the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars revolve around the earth. It's a nice kind of cozy place in comparison with our view of the universe as light years, millions of light years large, which nobody in antiquity had a clue about. You've just shifted from going up into heaven into going into our universe without batting an eye. Yeah, because uh, I don't do see that? that as a shift in worldview as you do. I see that as a shift in cosmology, perhaps, in our more advanced understanding of the universe. And that has no effect of on, the, the universe. on the way you understand a faith. No, I don't think so. And I know I differ with you on this, Dr. Hoover, is that I see a change in one's cosmology to be incidental to the belief in a transcendent reality that exists beyond space and time and that can act in history. I, I don't see that, that a shift from, say, a geocentric cosmology to a, a modern cosmology does anything to undermine belief in the existence of God who can do miracles in history. Okay, say, so I, would, I would say that religious language, both ancient and modern, is always informed by, embedded in, and supported by the state of knowledge of the time the state of knowledge is what we use to construct our worldview. And that that language of faith in antiquity is dependent upon the validity, the reality of that worldview. And if things assumed to be true about the world are changed, it necessarily is going to change the way you think and speak about that reality. So there is a shift. Well, oddly, it doesn't actually mean you, cha you change the way you speak about it. We still talk about the sun rising and the sun setting, well, even though we know that that's not literally true. I, and I don't see any reason to interpret the phenomenal language of the Bible where they say things like, he, you know, heaven is up or something of that sort, to be anything more than what you just said it is, just a culturally relative uh, expression of these beliefs in their society. We wouldn't expect people in the first century to know about modern astronomical theories of the, the universe. And, but that doesn't affect things like does God exist? Pre pre precisely. That is to say, precisely that, um, well, never mind. I want to ask another question. I've got two minutes. Go ahead. And to, to pose the question, I want to quote a passage from Stephen Patterson's book. Stephen is a professor of, theology, uh, of New Testament at Eden Theological Seminary in Webster Grove, Missouri, and a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. The book is The God of Jesus. Patterson says, and here I quote from page... 240, it is often argued today by evangelical theologians that without the miracle of the resurrection, it would be impossible to account for the rise and spread of Christianity or even its survival past Good Friday. But this is precisely what differentiates those first followers of Jesus from some of his latter-day worshipers. Before Jesus' death, they really believed his message, his gospel, for some Latter-day Christians, believing Jesus' gospel depends on whether the resurrection is an historical event. This shift is crucial, for it involves a shift in first commitments from message to miracle, from gospel to an observable demonstration of power. What say you? I say that this depends on what you think the gospel of Jesus is. We haven't talked about this tonight, but I, I disagree with you and with the fellows of the Jesus Seminar in their belief that Jesus of Nazareth didn't think of himself as the promised Jewish Messiah. 
it seems to me that the uh, pre-Easter Jesus did think of himself as a Messiah, and that if you don't believe that, the belief of the earliest Christians that he was Messiah becomes inexplicable. It is sometimes alleged that if Jesus' resurrection was not a supernatural miracle, then the claim that God raised him from the dead is meaningless. I disagree, and here's why. I briefly noted above uh, in, in the foregoing remarks that the idea of resurrection first appeared in early Judaism as faith's response to the experience of unredressed injustice or to the bitter experience of the fact that what actually happens in history is often unjust, that life is often unfair. The religion of Israel taught that the world was created and ruled by a just God, but some in Israel became troubled when their faith seemed contradicted by what they observed in actual human experience, that the wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. The historical experience and fate of a nation seem to have no relation to whether it is more or less just than its neighbors or rivals. Having wealth, power, and just plain luck seems to be sovereign in the world. Moral ideals seem to count for nothing in the end. If God is history's ruler, and if God is just, how could this be? Should one conclude that Israel's faith was mistaken? Should one abandon this faith and resign oneself to the fact that a high-minded commitment to justice is of no consequence in this world? Does actual human experience demonstrate that a concern for justice in society and for moral virtue in the individual counts for nothing in the end? A hope of resurrection was raised as a response to such anguished questions. The evidence of present experience notwithstanding, the quest for justice in society and for moral virtue in the individual does matter and will ultimately be vindicated. Insofar as a resurrection faith expresses a response to the question of whether the pursuit of justice in the world is worth a struggle, whether trying to live responsibly and with integrity is worth the trouble, then the, resu the resurrection faith of ancient believers is concerned with actual human experience, which is continuous with our own, not just with ideas that are dependent upon a no longer credible ancient worldview. The resurrection faith of the first Christian generation was that if we give up on the kingdom of God, on the quest for justice and the cultivation of moral excellence, we will lose our souls, our humanity. That is and ought to be the claim of Christian faith in the modern world as well. What is true may not always prevail, but only what is true can enable us to distinguish what is genuine from what is contrived. Justice may not always be done, but justice is still the only basis upon which a life in a truly human community is possible. Evil may defeat the good, but only the good can nourish and sustain a humane way of life. To affirm such things is to affirm what is continuous with ancient resurrection faith, a faith that believes in the indispensability of such virtues and values even in the face of disconfirming evidence, and even if you have to pay a price for them. There is a second element 
in ancient resurrection faith that I suggest. Am I out of time? Uh, one minute. There's a second element in an ancient resur- resurrection faith that is continuous with our experience in the modern world, an element that Paul Tillich, theologian Paul Tillich, called the holiness of what ought to be. That is to say, the possibility that life can be transformed. The world can be a better world than it is at the present time. We can be better than we were or are uh, in, in the future. And there is the power in the power of being that gives us life to make that possible. Thank you. In tonight's debate, I've argued for two contentions. First, that there are four historical facts which any adequate hypothesis has to account for. Now, what you probably don't appreciate is that in establishing these four facts, I have implicitly used the very same criteria that Dr. Hoover and the Jesus Seminar use in supporting their claims uh, to certain authentic sayings of Jesus. Things like multiple independent attestation, dissimilarity, uh, embarrassment, and so forth. So that, in effect, Dr. Hoover cannot deny, I think, these four facts because they are established by the same criteria that he uses to establish the authentic words of Jesus. Specifically, we saw that the burial by Joseph of Arimathea is authentic. This is attested multiply by early and independent sources, It is not explicitly mentioned, uh, or rather it is mentioned by Paul, and that that is uh, completely consonant with the pre-Mark and Passion story and the other uh, independent sources. Joseph is not a Christian invention because a Christian legend would have made uh, the disciples bury Jesus, give him an honorable burial if that was their concern, not a hated member of the Sanhedrin. And that's why by far and away most historical scholars disagree with the fellows of the Jesus Seminar and Dr. Hoover concerning the burial of Jesus in the tomb. What about the fact of the empty tomb? Well, remember I gave five lines of evidence for that. Again, the burial story supports it. We have early independent evidence for this. It's consistent with what Paul says, even if Paul doesn't explicitly mention it. The women discovered the tomb. The simplicity of the narrative show it's not a legendary account. And the earliest Jewish polemic itself presupposed it. For all of these reasons, most of which have gone undiscussed in tonight's debate, most scholars think that probably at 75% of contemporary New Testament scholars would say that the tomb of Jesus belongs to the portrait of the historical Jesus. Thirdly, the appearances, as I say, these are universally acknowledged by New Testament scholars as having occurred, uh, and they uh, cannot be dismissed as mere visionary appearances on the basis of vocabulary because the Greek word ophthe can refer to appearances by physical objects as well as a, a supernatural seeing. And finally, the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. Here, Dr. Hoover has to say that the original disciples really didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus at all because in Jewish mind, a resurrection was something that happened to the bones, that happened to the deceased person. And he has to say that even though they used this misleading language, nobody really believed this literally. But clearly, the story of the empty tomb, Paul's disquisitions about the resurrection body that will be raised show that they did believe in the traditional Jewish concept of resurrection. 
I also pointed out that the Jews had no idea of a resurrection before the end of the world, so that why they would come to apply this language to this experience becomes utterly mysterious on Dr. Hoover's view. By contrast, secondly, I argue that the best explanation of, their, uh, of these four facts is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Richard France, a New Testament scholar, has pointed out that at the level of their literary and historical character, we have good reason to treat the gospel seriously as a source of information about the life and teachings of Jesus. He says, ancient historians have sometimes remarked that the degree of skepticism with which New Testament scholars approach their sources is far greater than would be thought justified in any other branch of ancient history. He says the decision as to how far a scholar is willing to accept the account that they offer is likely to be influenced more by his openness to a supernaturalist worldview than by strictly historical considerations. To my mind, that is the bottom line. The only reason for denying the resurrection of Jesus is not historical, it's philosophical. It's just that people in the Jesus Seminar, as they say in the five Gospels, are not open to a supernaturalist worldview. Klaus Berger, a German theologian, has said normal Protestant liberalism in its flat denial of miracles is a form of rationalistic cultural imperialism. It produces intellectual poverty. It says our limited powers of perception is the yardstick for absolutely everything in the world. By contrast, if God exists, then in the words of atheist philosopher Peter Slezak, for a God who is able to create the universe in a big bang, the odd resurrection is child's play. Okay, it's your turn. Um, if you have a question, if you can make your way down to the microphone. Uh, what we'll try to do is take a question for one of our scholar panelists first, and then take a follow-up question to another. Uh, if by chance you need to depart, uh, feel free to. But uh, we will be here for a few more minutes taking some questions. Um, we'll start over here and then come to this microphone. Uh, if you don't mind, if you see uh, an opening one side or the other and you can balance out the mics a little bit, that would be helpful, but go ahead. Who is your question for? To Dr. Hoover. Dr. Hoover. Um, why would a just God who rewards integrity with resurrection, um, rewards a life with integrity with resurrection, ask believers to believe in an exalted Christ who really didn't rise from the dead? Be stake their whole belief on something that's a fallacy. Well, uh, you can rephrase the question whether God is asking anybody to believe anything or whether the people who find themselves in that situation and see what they have been taught to believe all of their lives find that experience, their experience in the world seems to contradict that or whether they still believe in spite of the contradictory evidence that their faith in God is, uh, is justified and that God in the end is not going to let them down. I, I would translate that as, as, as I did in my closing remarks, that that faith, I would say, translates into a belief that human life, uh, genuine human life, requires that justice be a part of that life. That's what the rule of a just God is about. And that um, the possibility of the transformation of life 
uh, has to be a part of a fulfilling human life. And that when you translate those concerns, as Dr. Craig translated the, the ascension into modern language, I'm translating those terms of the resurrection hope into what I take to be modern language. And in that respect, I think those concerns are still value and still important to a full human life. Dr. Craig, would you like to add anything? I think that what the questioner doesn't appreciate, and you wouldn't know this unless you read Dr. Hoover's writings, is how radically he reinterprets the concept of God so that the question becomes meaningless for him because he doesn't believe in the existence of a personal God beyond the world who is concerned about these sort of things. Um, he, he quotes Gordon Kaufman, the Harvard theologian, as saying it's unintelligible to think of God as a sort of super self beyond the world. So if you don't have this concept of a personal God who is distinct from and transcends the world and is able to act in the world, the kind of question about, well, what would God permit people to believe and what does he want us to believe, it doesn't even arise for persons who reject classical uh, views of the, of the existence of God. Thank you. Um, is your question for Dr. Craig? Dr. Craig? I was wondering, because uh, I've heard reports out there when you're talking about the empty tomb, that some people feel that Jews or somebody else may have come in and moved the body and buried it elsewhere. I was wondering what your feeling on those views are, if that possibly could have happened. or. Yeah. This was a theory that was suggested back in 1922 by a Jewish scholar named Joseph Klausner. He said perhaps what Joseph of Arimathea did was to temporarily place the body in his own tomb with a view toward moving it then elsewhere later and that the disciples or the women then came to the original tomb and found it empty and inferred that Jesus was risen from the dead. Well, there are a number of problems with that. For one thing, if we can trust rabbinical sources, the common burial plot for criminals was uh, five to six hundred yards away from the site of the crucifixion. There's no reason that Joseph couldn't have placed the body directly in the common burial yard for criminals had he wanted to. This was typical Jewish practice to bury on the same day as execution. In fact, Jewish law actually prohibited moving the body to any place but the family tomb after it had been interred. So it would have been illegal for Joseph to, to, to move the body. But the real Achilles heel for this hypothesis is that if such a thing had occurred and the disciples had made the mistake and started going around proclaiming the resurrection, all Joseph would have had to do was simply inform uh, the disciples and the people of Jerusalem, no, no, I moved the body, this is where it really is, sorry, the whole thing was a big mistake. But that never happened. As, we, as I saw, said, the earliest Jewish polemic and disputes with Christians was about why the body was missing, not about was it in a common grave or, or where was it or, or was it identifiable or anything of that sort. So. I, I think that hypothesis is, uh, is not very plausible and it hasn't really generated any following outside of a few in internet infidels like uh, uh, on, on, that, that site, on that website. Okay. Dr. Uh, the story about the, the, the claim that the Jews were claiming that the, the disciples stole the body of Jesus, if I'm remembering this correctly, is found only in the Gospel of Matthew. In any case, it's found in only in one of the Gospels. I think it is Matthew. Uh, we should take note of the fact that uh, Matthew was not written until about the year 80 or thereabouts in the judgment of most New Testament scholars. 
That's 50 years after the event. Uh, there's no indication, we have no evidence of any such story prior to the writing of Matthew's Gospel. Furthermore, Matthew's Gospel is written after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Josephus says most of Jerusalem was so badly leveled by the Roman army in 70 that if you came upon the site without knowing that it had been inhabited, you'd never guess that the site of Jerusalem had, had ever been inhabited. So nobody at the time of the writing of Matthew's Gospel, which is where the story be, uh, comes from, would have any, any opportunity to check out the historical details of what is claimed. Okay. Um, who's your question for? Okay, um, we'll go back here and then... Okay, well good, that'll come out right. <laughs> go ahead. Dr. Hoover, uh, in your mentioning uh, Paul writing in the 50s and the Gospels being written, your, your mention of Paul writing in the 50s and the Gospels by the 90s, uh, compared to a lot of ancient historical stories that we accept as fact, uh, there are multiple sources, whether it's one or two or five, uh, and some very early manuscripts cons uh, compared to other things in ancient history. It seems, or some could argue, that the resurrection of Jesus was one of the best attested uh, events in ancient history. Uh, and I seem to get the impression that one of your uh, objections to it is the supernatural component. And what I wanted to ask was what type of historical evidence could we discover that would uh, change your mind or open your view to a supernatural intervention of God in history? Let, let me start with the last question first about uh, the nature of the God in whom we have traditionally uh, said we believe in Christian faith. Um, I, I would agree with uh, Dr. Craig that the question of God is a big question here. Uh, I would also agree with Gordon Kaufman, however, that the ideas of God which have been transmitted to us in the Christian tradition all come from, are embedded in that ancient world that I talked about. Uh, they were created, uh, Kaufman says, I think correctly, all theology is and always has been the constructive work of the human imagination. Uh, it represents the best attempt that people at that time had in identifying the nature of the power that brought themselves and their world into being and how they were related to that power. Uh, I think we have the same, um, what shall I say, the same responsibility and the same challenge to rethink the, what the term God, the idea of God means in relation to modern knowledge and the modern world that the people of the ancient world uh, did when they, when they invented the idea of a, uh, a, 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 trans a transcendent single God as the ruler and creator of, of all things. Um, I agree with, with Gordon Kaufman that since much about the world as we know it was completely unknown to our ancient predecessors, we dare not simply take over traditional ideas. We have to rethink them ourselves and find their meaning. I recall the uh, comment again by theologian Paul Tillich uh, in one of his early writings who said, to have a spiritual life is to live in the presence of meaning. 
That is what we have to discern for ourselves in our own time. What is it that has meaning for us as human beings? Uh, what meaning do we see in our religious tradition? And how can we translate that meaning into contemporary terms? Uh, so I'm only answering part of that question. Uh, I would just very quickly, uh, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, you will find in your Bibles three different conclusions to Mark. The first, which ends at verse 8, which the oldest and best manuscripts, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament say, that's where the original ending of Mark was. It's perfectly clear that later readers of Mark in the first century were unhappy with that ending, and they, they added two additional endings, a shorter ending and a larger ending. You can see that in the copies of your own Revised Standard Version. In other words, uh, people extended the story of Mark in order to make it a more satisfactory story. I think essentially that's what Matthew, Luke, and John did also. Well, I noticed that Dr. Hoover didn't answer your question. I, I imagine you noticed that too. I've often heard this question put to anti-supernaturalists or non-theists. What evidence would it take to convince you that a personal God exists and has acted here in history. And they, they can never answer the question, it seems, because if you're closed to this view, nothing will convince you. You can always explain it away as hallucinatory or delusory or something of the sort. Um, but while I agree with Dr. Hoover that we certainly do need to rethink the concept of God and to see whether uh, or not it is tenable in light of uh, modern developments in science and philosophy, I see no reason whatsoever to agree with someone like Kaufman that the traditional concept of God as a transcendent personal reality who is the creator and designer of the universe, who is the locus of absolute goodness, and who has uh, created us to know him is in any way incoherent, outmoded, or unacceptable. Uh, and indeed, I think that the evidence that we've looked at tonight supports that, that God has acted in a mighty way to disclose himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth by raising him from the dead. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Dr. Sidon. Okay. Um, I wish you were here yesterday. I had to write a paper on one of your articles on the Kalam argument, so I could have, <laughs> I could have just uh, asked you here. Um, I'd like to get you to speak to uh, an issue in the, it's actually a Jewish issue, um, in 1994, Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Blessed Memory passed, and uh, many, many members of the Lubavitch community consider him to be the Messiah, despite the fact that he died and he appears to be buried in Crown Heights or, no, in Queens. The same sort of language is being used to talk about him now among Messianic believers in this Jewish movement, that his body is uh, hidden, that it's gone, it's, it's gone somewhere else, that he's passed into a different dimension, or... That kind of language is being used. So we see the same sort of thing happening with uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson and Jesus, the same sort of language happening. I don't think so. I think it illustrates my point. They, these claims are made two, after 2,000 years of Christian history and a cultural context in which now talk of Jesus as the Messiah, risen from the dead, and so forth, is part of, of standard belief. And the problem is that people tend to read the situation of the disciples through the rearview mirror of 2,000 years of Christian history. When, in fact, you've got to put yourself back in their place 
and their horizon with traditional Jewish concepts. And in that case, nothing like this would have been proposed. As I say, uh, when Messiahs, would-be Messiahs, got themselves crucified, uh, you, you didn't claim, well, I guess he was Messiah after all. The idea that Messiah, rather than establishing David's throne, would be defeated by the Gentiles would have been a contradiction in terms. It was just absurd. There's nothing in Judaism of that sort of uh, Messiah. And there's no connection between Messiah and resurrection from the dead. Resurrection from the dead was something that took place at the end of the world. It didn't occur within human history. So when you put yourself in the position of the disciples, if they had been confronted with the death of Jesus, and even if they had believed God had exalted him to heaven, they would have simply said, Jesus' soul is now in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, where the righteous dead go to await the resurrection at the end of the world, and we'll preserve our master's tomb as a shrine, where his bones will reside until the resurrection, and we'll all be united with him in glory. Uh, That is the way a first century Jew would have reacted. And yet that's not what happened in the case of Christianity, uh, of Jesus. And you've got to, any responsible historian has got to come up with some adequate explanation as to why that, what took place did take place. And it seems to me that it's difficult to deny, once you're open to a supernaturalist worldview, that the best explanation is the one the disciples gave, namely God raised him from the dead. It really happened. So the question I guess I would ask would be that what is the difference... Is it, it rather is it plausible that the same sort of theological move that the Lubavitchers are making to claim that their Messiah yeah. has somehow survived death and remains the Messiah despite being buried and some such that it's not likely to think that the disciples could have had the same sort of ingenuity yeah, to make well, the same I, I theological move? I answered that question already. I, I repeat that claim by these Jewish uh, people is one that is influenced by 2,000 years of Christian history and provides a cultural context in which that kind of thing makes sense. And to to try to project that back onto the first century is anachronistic. Thank you. I'll pass. Dr. Hoover, uh, you stated that um, Jesus never come out and directly claimed that he was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. However, in John chapter 4, verse 25, the episode with the woman at the well, 25 reads, the woman who said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare to us all things. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. What is your response? Well, it has to do with the nature of the Gospel of John in comparison with the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, Virtually everybody who studies the question recognizes that the Synoptics are so-called, as the term implies. They, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, look with the same kinds of eyes at the story of Jesus. And they tell the story of Jesus in basically the same way. For example, in those three Gospels, the characteristic teaching of Jesus is in parables and in aphorisms. Uh, How many parables are there in the Gospel of John? Zero. Uh, In the Gospel of John, Jesus' most characteristic form of speech is a lengthy discourse in which Jesus makes claims about himself. By the way, in the Synoptic Gospels, in our reading of those Gospels, the historical Jesus does not make claims for himself. He makes claims about the kingdom of God. Later, his disciples make, make claims about him after his death. 
In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes claims about himself all over the place. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the water of life, and so on. We read, I read uh, the Gospel of John not as an account of Jesus' uh, historical ministry, but a kind of theological statement about what Jesus had come to mean to that faith community by the end of the first century. That accounts for the, what shall we say, the, uh, the particular nature of the Gospel of John. So John is interpreting the meaning of Jesus' life for his faith community rather than reporting what Jesus' actual ministry on earth was like. See, what you've got to understand is that for theologians like Professor Hoover, not every word of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels is authentic. They believe that only those words are authentic which can be proven by tests like multiple independent sources, dissimilarity, embarrassment, and so forth, the very criteria I've used to establish these four facts tonight. Now, what I would argue is that when you apply these same criteria to the Messianic sayings of Jesus and events in the Synoptic Gospels, you can show that Jesus did think of himself as the Messiah. For example, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt is multiply and independently attested in the New Testament and is part of this early pre-Mark and Passion story. And that is in deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of Israel's coming shepherd king and shows that Jesus deliberately was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah claiming to be the Messiah. Moreover, virtually all New Testament scholars recognize that the wording of the plaque nailed to the cross above Jesus' head read, the king of the Jews, that Jesus was crucified for being a messianic pretender. So in things like the triumphal entry, the uh, action in the temple, the plaque on the cross, I think we have very good grounds for holding that uh, being Messiah was part of the historical portrait of Jesus. Plaque on the cross, by the way, was a, a, a Roman announcement of the, of the the basic charge against Jesus as to why they felt it was legally justifiable to execute him. It's not a confession of faith that Jesus is a Messiah. No, it's not a confession of faith, but it shows that he was he was crucified as a messianic pretender, someone who was claiming to be the king of the Jews. So the Romans claimed, if you believe them. Okay. Who's my, your question My for? question's for Dr. Hoover. Who's your question Dr. for? Craig. You, and then you, since we're trying to bounce. Okay. I know you've been waiting longer. But. This, this kind of touches on uh, credibility of Scripture in an argument like this. Um, the Gnostic Gospels, like the Nag Hammadi Library, Thomas, Mary, um, they're not accepted in canons of the church. As secular historical documents, do they legitimately or credibly add any weight to the historical Jesus' death and resurrection? I don't think they really do. Uh, the Gospel of Peter could perhaps contain some independent traditions that might be valuable. But these apocryphal Gospels came hundreds of years after the four Gospels, uh, they were universally recognized to be forgeries, uh, and they bear the imprint of second century Gnosticism and beyond. They were the documents of a, uh, a Gnostic form of Christianity that used 
Jesus as a vehicle or mouthpiece for their Gnostic philosophy. So although people like James Robinson have been desperate to find some sort of relevance for these Gnostic Gospels in the study of the historical Jesus, I think the bottom line is that they really don't amount to all that much. The, the primary sources remain the four Gospels that were incorporated into the New Testament because these were documents in the first century within the generation of the eyewitnesses relying upon sources that go right back to within a few years after the events. And so a scholar like John Meyer, for example, in his epical volumes on, the, on Jesus, the, A Marginal Jew, uh, says that the idea that the apocryphal Gospels furnish us with additional historical information about Jesus is largely fantasy. Uh, those are his words. Uh, two things about the Gospel of Thomas. That's the only gospel, uh, the, the apocryphal gospel, in which the Jesus Seminar found some authentic sayings tradition of Jesus. Uh, and that's the reason why we included it in the five gospels. It's an independent witness to some of the same parables and aphorisms that we find in the synoptic gospels. Second thing to say in response to the question is there is no account of the death or resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is simply a collection of sayings. It's not a narrative gospel. Dr. Hoover, I want to thank you for being here. I had a quick question based upon most of your presentation. I know you can't see me. I'm a short guy. Uh, most of your presentation was based upon using discrepancies in the Gospels and the, the epistles of Paul to challenge the veracity of the, the physical resurrection of Christ. My question is, what proof is there to dispute the physical resurrection of Christ? Is there evidence that would, that would be physical evidence? Is there evidence disclaiming uh, the first century testimony of a physical resurrection of Christ? Um, I guess I want to know, why are you so ardently opposed to the idea of a physical resurrection? Uh, the question is not whether I'm opposed to the physical resurrection or not. The question is whether the evidence supports the idea or not, or whether the insistence upon that idea is really a modern requirement of certain forms of modern evangelical faith. Um, I, I, in, in my presentation, I think you'll recall, I said at the outset, I'm not interested in saying no. I'm interested in saying yes. And I made a case uh, for a view of the resurrection which, to which I could say yes. I regard the Easter narratives in the Gospel, uh, even though they appear to be the earliest accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, are as a matter of literary, their literary quality, they are the latest elements. They are the last accounts in the New Testament to be written about the Gospels. That's one of the reasons why there's no common tradition behind them and why many of us think that they, are, they were written to satisfy the needs of popular piety, religious piety, near the end of the first century. After the eyewitness generation had gone, people didn't remember the historical Jesus anymore, and the, uh, the, the imaginative accounts of the Eastern narrative were meant to give people the sense of reality about the resurrection. When claims that God had raised Jesus from the dead was an affirmation of faith seemed not to satisfy those people. Can I follow up briefly? If you're not here to say no, how can you pre preclude the physical resurrection? Well, we have, no, we have no independent physical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And as I said in my 
in my opening statement, Jesus, the risen Jesus, if he was physically resurrected, didn't appear anywhere in public. He was crucified in public. He appeared only to people who believed in him or who became believers like the Apostle Paul. Well, naturally, they became believers. I mean, if you saw, you know, Jesus... No, 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 no. Pilate, Pilate did not become a believer. Pilate did not become a believer. The, the vast number, of, a percentage of the citizens of Jerusalem did not become believers. No, no, that's right. But there, it's not true that Jesus only appeared to believers and that he didn't appear publicly in a group of 500 people to James. I mean, the, think of this. Most of us have brothers. What would it take to convince you that your brother was the Lord so that you would be willing to die for that belief the way James did. Well, I think there can be hardly any doubt that the reason is what Paul said. Then he appeared to James. So I find that the, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is quite good, actually, and that the only reason to deny it is going to be this aversion to a supernaturalist worldview. And one, that's a philosophical question that a New Testament theologian is ill-equipped to address. That's, that's a philosophical issue, and I don't see any philosophical problem with uh, the concept of theism or the idea of miracles. Um, and if you're open to that, then it seems to me that the evidence pretty clearly points in one direction. Uh, we're running out of time, so this will have to be our last question to, to okay. whomever. All right. Uh, I... I, there may be something I'm just not getting, but um, I was surprised and confused when Dr. Hoover was um, discussing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not talk about either, I'm not sure if it was the burial or the resurrection, but, and then I was also surprised that Dr. Craig <laughs> didn't jump on that and say, what about when Paul says, if, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are of all men most wretched? I mean, is that just not considered to be something Paul really said? Or is that a dumb question? I just, I don't understand. I think that is addressed to Dr. Hoover. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. It's coming out of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians again. What most people uh, don't notice about that section of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 is that he does not argue for the resurrection of Christ. He argues for the credibility of the idea of the resurrection itself. And he repeats that four different times in this chapter. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Chapter, uh, verse 16, if, or if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Paul takes the resurrection of the dead, the, uh, that idea, as an article of faith. For him it is true. And because he believes in the resurrection of the dead, he feels he can affirm the, the resurrection of Christ. Yes, he says, if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile, but Christ is raised because the idea of the resurrection of the dead is a credible idea for Paul. What you need to understand is that Professor Hoover's claim was that Paul doesn't mention the empty tomb of Jesus. You're certainly right that Paul mentions the resurrection, and he mentions the resurrection body. But Paul 
doesn't say there was an empty tomb in so many words. But as I pointed out, what he does say is Christ was buried and then he was raised. And that no first century Jew would have said, gosh, but was the body still in the, in the grave? Uh, the Jewish concept of resurrection was the raising up of the dead person in the tomb. So, of course, Paul believed in the empty tomb, uh, even though he doesn't explicitly use those words. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he most certainly is arguing for the resurrection of Jesus. People in Corinth were denying the general resurrection of the dead, this Jewish hope that we talked about tonight. Paul realizes the implications of this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Christ hasn't been raised. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if uh, in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we're of all men most to be pitied. But then verse 20, the hinge verse, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's why he listed all of those appearances to the 500, to James, to the 12, to establish this fact. Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore the Corinthians ought to believe in the general resurrection of the dead as well, because that is based, our hope is based upon the historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. From the dead. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.